GM friends and welcome to the future of gaming. You're listening to our weekly blockchain gaming roll-up. It is today the 12th of August 2022. We've got Philip Collins, we've got Devin Becker and we've got myself Nico Vreke. We are discussing first, we um, I recently shared uh, content worth consuming, a research paper on tokenomics and there's some uh, things I learned in there. There's a lot of good stuff in there, one of which we want to discuss. It's about tokenomics and allocations, token allocations. Then um, Splinterland does something with sports. Then we're discussing what is an NFT and what the hell does it have to do with ownership? Devin's gonna give us a, a rundown there. Um, we're also talking about the Tornado Cash sanctions, USDC, Frozen. And we're talking about Axie that introduces season zero of Origin. Um, and if we have some time, there's some other smaller topics we can touch upon. All right, let's let's start. Um, so tokenomics. Um, so the research paper I shared is a research paper written for a game. It's a game um, built by Starchain Gazers, which is a French-based um, blockchain gaming company. And so the founder, who is part of the Vogdao, shout out to Dan. He um, it, he worked with like some computer science professors and economy professors, finance professors to actually like build a research paper about the best practices in both first DeFi and then blockchain gaming. And then, you know, distill all of those and, and take it into like what they're designing around their game. Um, and as a part of that, they looked at tokenomics and like more specifically um, how tokens are distributed amongst stakeholders in like an ecosystem. And so, you know, if you looked at a white paper or like even a website where they talk about their tokenomics, you will remember like a pie chart where you have like, you know, X percent goes to the team, then you have like a bit of percent going to founders, uh, sorry, to advisors, maybe investors, and then like community and then liquidity providing and stuff like that. Um, In-game rewards is also usually there. Um, and so a lot of people take that as at, at face value, value where they're like, oh, you know, the team gets 20%. Um, and so that's like, they get 20%. Uh, but in reality, um, if you're, if you ever studied finance or like, um, or something related to that, you'll know that if, if um, like in finance, money you can get today is worth more than money you can get tomorrow. So, you know, because there's an opportunity cost, you could have like reinvested money. You always prefer to have something today than in a point in the future because you don't know what's going to happen in between. And so essentially they proposed, and this is this probably like might be, make a lot of sense to a lot of people, but it, it, I learned this, okay? So um, anyway, so what they proposed was you need to discount um, the tokens that are em emitted over time um, with a certain time factor, but you know discounting them. So essentially some tokens are like vested, some tokens are emitted over a bunch of time, some tokens are only like released after maybe two years and then they start emitting, right? So you have like vesting schedules and cliffs. Um, anyway, and so depending on that, the token allo allocation might actually look very different. So, you know, one hypothetical example is there's a TGE, which is a token generation e generating event, which means like the Genesis smart contract gets created, right? And from that moment on, you start, you know, vesting and counting towards people's like unlock schedules. Um, and so for example, if you have a game where, you know, the game's out in two years, let's say, and from year two, then the game, the tokens get emitted within the game as like play to earn rewards or whatever you want to call it. Um, let's say that you have, um, so from year two, you start emitting um, those tokens, those reward tokens, let's say over five years. So it's going to take from point zero, it's going to take seven years to emit them all. Um, if you compare that to some unlock schedules for, for founders and the team, for example, it might be that it's, it starts, you know, vesting after one year and it only takes two years for all of these tokens to be fully emitted. 
And so if you calculate after seven years, the um, if you discount the rate or like the time it takes for tokens to get unlocked, in reality, the founders actually get a way larger part of that pie than you would initially think because their tokens get unlocked earlier. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. So yep. that's something I found uh, interesting. And in general, that tokenomics paper is really great to read. Um, there's a lot of <coughs> concepts that they go over uh, in DeFi and blockchain gaming that um, are useful to like get a refresher on if you, uh, if you might need one. And so is, is a big part of that, I haven't had a chance to go through the full paper yet, basically like a risk premium to the founders or the players that are there earlier, where the, the discount is effectively giving you a larger share because it's, it's almost vesting over a longer period of time. Uh, the, the conclusion is more like um, that some people tend to forget that, you know, the, the, the real token distribution is depending on when they unlock, right? And so mm -hmm. it's more of a, look, take these, these vesting schedules into account when you act, like, before you t make any conclusions about token distributions, right? Hmm. Again, like, you know, people are used to looking at that pie and be like, oh, 20% goes to the team, 5% to advisors, that's fair. So it's like, it, it's check, like tokenomics are, are good enough for me to like consider this as a something I, I'd get into, right? But you actually need to dig a bit deeper and also look at the unlock schedules from each party to figure out like the, you know, hmm. effective token distribution. Yeah, it's, it's also something that varies over time, like um, because people treat the token differently. So like um, when you're say, say you're uh, allocating to liquidity, right? That might mean you're allocating that to say an AMM, which is not guaranteeing that that's in anyone's pocket. It's sitting on an AMM as opposed to like an exchange where people are exchanging directly from one to another. So like sitting in an AMM is not necessarily reflecting the same the supply the same way as say sitting in someone's pocket or uh, also the same way as when uh, tokens vest. Uh, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong here, but isn't basically just as soon as tokens vest sell. You, you just sell them basically they just hit the market for the most part especially because like as phil was saying about the idea of a premium the sooner you, you could sell a token since the token values generally go down that you are getting a premium by getting it earlier not just off the future discount but off the idea that it is probably going to go down in price and it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy because when you unlock you create a huge huge amount of sell pressure because it goes from mm -hmm. like let's say people are kind of selling like this you know they, like this slight incline as people are earning uh, and maybe the game's growing or shrinking, so that affects it a little bit. But then as soon as, like, a big unlock happens and all those people sell, that's a big jump. And that's a lot of sell pressure all of a sudden. And if people react emotionally, they could just, like, all of a sudden be like, oh, my God, the game's going to crash and panic sell, and it could, like, domino effect and stuff like mm -hmm. that. So it's just, like, there's a lot of these different factors that's, like, and I think basically kind of the point, essentially what you're making, Nico is, Nico, is that you can't just look at a chart and be like, this is what the token's going to do over time because there's all these different factors that hit at different times with different kinds of pressures, different kinds of uh, actual like supply flow, like in where the tokens is and how it's moving around kind of in the, in the financial plumbing. Uh, and that all of that has effects on different areas, including the game, the, the markets, the AMMs, uh, the, the players themselves, all that stuff. And it makes a lot of sense, too, because, again, we haven't really seen what that reckoning day looks like when tokens do unlock. For most relevant projects today, token unlocks are, you know, over the coming years. Um, and so planning ahead for this is going to be important. Even for the best content, there can be massive market moving pricing pressures that take place. Even if you are a successful game, if, if 
10, 15, 20, 30% of your token supply is owned by investors that are going to seek liquidity when, they're, when their uh, lockup ends. I mean, there, there definitely needs to be structures put in place now with that in mind, that no matter how successful your game is as a game, there are going to be significant sell pressures at some point. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, it sucks because it's like, imagine if you issue stock in, a, in your company uh, as, as, like, as your way of like, you know, repaying the investors. And then immediately their instinct is as soon as like their stock's able to vest, they just sell immediately. And like, that's not going to look great for your stock, right? Like no matter, no matter who you are, like that's going to, that's going to look bad. And it's one of those problematic things that we've kind of set up for ourselves with the way we've done all this token based uh, sort of investment uh, reimbursement essentially for these things. And it's like, it's, it's weird because it's like we take a bunch of IOU fake money that we make up as tokens and we go, well, cool. Like you you can cash in this IOU fake money as soon as like, uh, you know, years up or two years or whatever it is. But you're not actually going to cash it out from me. I'm not going to give you any of it. You're going to cash it out from the players. So you're going to go to the players and ask for your investment back. And that, when you think about it, it's kind of weird. Yeah. And what you said, Devin, about, you know, once investors are vested, they immediately get out. Um, There's kind of like um, game theory behind this where (laughs) if you're like, the thing is that investors usually unlock simultaneously, right? Mm -hmm. like there's, there's usually like as an investor you don't want to get in in into like an emission schedule that where some investors have like a better right. unlock schedule or like an earlier unlock schedule. So anyway, so you know there's usually a bunch of investors involved in in any one project, and so you know once tokens get unlocked, you don't want to be the one holding the bag, right? And so essentially, it there's massive pressure for everyone to to sell mm-hmm. at the same time. So yeah. I think it's fair to assume that once tokens get unlocked for investors, they get out. Although they, they might be like believing in the project on the longer term, but they're Hopefully. almost forced because mm-hmm. like they cannot or they should not if, if they have like, you know, l- um, limited partners that they have to like explain their actions to, then um, you can't be holding the bag if every other investor sells, which right. is going to result because of, you know, game theory dynamics into everyone selling, you know, wh- whenever they can. And so I think for that, I'm I'm always in favor of like, you know, very well designed and, and, and um, like unlock schedules. Where you know it's it's like and and you know assuming that once tokens get unlocked it will they will be dumped and so basically like make sure that your unlock happens after the game is out and when there's like when you plan for some demand and maybe you know you try to time like certain game releases with these unlock schedules and stuff so that way there is you know extra demand to buffer a bit um, for the, the the extra supply that will. I'll coming. be honest, the VC investment method when it comes to tokens and stuff just makes no sense to me. You take a bunch of money and you almost guarantee you're going to lose it by investing it because I haven't seen a game design yet where there's actually a reason to believe the token value will go up over more than like a month. Uh, mm. You know, like the, just there's no long-term value to, to um, increase the price. Like, there could be long-term value in terms of people sticking around and playing, but what is the demand that's going to be so absolutely insane that the game is actually going to go up in price after initial demand, where like there's the demand spike at the beginning, right? Where like the initial growth, like what what initial growth cycle do you see where it's like oh it goes up and then plateaus for a minute, but then it goes up even more and then plateaus goes up even more. It's always like there's one spike, maybe two. But it almost always goes down. So it just feels like you're investing money that you could be investing in something that's more likely to actually come back with a return than something where you're like, well, it's probably going to come. And you're basically racing your discount. So it's like, let's say you got in at like essentially six cents worth 
and like the initial price is like a dollar and you're like, okay, I just got to be able to sell this before it hits six cents or lower. Like you're just racing that discount that you got basically. And I don't know, like I'm not a VC. So it's just to me, like it feels kind of crazy. Uh, but you know, if you want to give me some money, I would appreciate it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, it's especially interesting because so many of these tokens prices are artificially inflated today. Uh, and there's plenty of you know billion plus dollar projects that aren't billion dollar IPs. And once that initial sell pressure hits and that, that first dip happens, I think there is a good chance that a lot of those never go back up. And so like, if you don't get out first to Nico's point on the, the, uh, the mental exercise of if everyone's getting out, I just have to dump too and, and just kind of go along with the crowd. I, I, I do think there is, there is a risk where you are answering to your LPs of, you know, all those people got out at, you know, 750, 800, 900 million. Why are you, why are you getting down at, down at 400 million? Um, but we believe in it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so I, I think there, there's going to be a, at some point the lockups are going to end. These tokens are going to be hit by sell pressure and maybe that's what takes them to their more intrinsic value. But I think we're still, we're still a little ways off from seeing what that looks like, but it's, it's going to be, I think it'll be a pretty painful period for a lot of these tokens. I think it's honestly still a relic of us trying to take DeFi and ICO kind of stuff and apply it to games. And I don't think it totally makes sense for games. Like just even this idea of these token distribution schedules, investing schedules, like all the stuff that we, we do right now is just kind of copy and pasted from earlier stuff. But we don't really actually question, does this even make sense for games mm -hmm. to have these kind so of uh, economic systems designed in a way that's like, that's not how game systems work. That's not how game economies work. It's it's such a different thing, like tacked on top, that I I just I want to pause and be like, does this even make sense? Should we even be doing it like this? Should we even say there's a cap on it and this is how we're going to get to the cap and trying to treat it like it's Bitcoin or something? And mm -hmm. that's not really how it functions, and it's certainly not how it's distributed with play to earn models and stuff like that. It's not it's not really proof of work in the in the, the sense that Bitcoin is right, and it's certainly not proof of stake in the way that Ethereum is going to be. Hopefully next month. So do you guys do you guys think two years from now every single game is gonna have its own token? Or do you no. think we eventually move away from this model? I think we move away so, from the model. I, I that's okay. that's kind of where I'm at right now. Interesting. So Devin, I agree. I think there's a lot of looking around and like, oh, all of these teams have done this, so I guess I need to do this too. Which Yeah, I get that like, with staking you know, a lot. Exactly. Everyone else so is doing it, so why shouldn't we do it? Yeah, and then another example for me is like rarities in NFTs. Like, oh, we're going to sell like, let's say between 5,000 and 20,000 NFTs, and then they have to have different rarity levels, right? Um, and so that, that's another, you know, thing that happens, especially within games, which I like are, in my opinion, is stupid for, for at least makes it hard for you to design good games. Might get people to trade the assets and you gives you some royalty revenue stream, but doesn't really help you in long term, in my opinion, right? And so... I agree that there's a lot of looking around and like, okay, these seem to be the best practices. So I guess we need to do this. And also if you, so, I mean, this, for me, a lot of this boils down to the fact that everyone in the market is essentially like the same 100,000 people who are just flipping NFTs and tokens to each other <laughs> yeah, in a big Ponzi scheme. Because <laughs> no one is actually going to want to play these game and we're all banking all, on all the other it's people. It's hot potato. Actually wanting to <laughs> exactly. Um, so I think there's a lot of that going on. And so my point is all these 100,000 people are used to 
certain things, right? They're used to having yeah. the token with a fixed supply. No one wants to hold a token that doesn't have a like a, a fixed supply, man, because you never know, you know, hyperinflation. Mm -hmm. That's why we're into Bitcoin, man. We don't want that anyway. So um, anyway, I agree that there's a, a lot of things being go or going on being done that are just like that don't necessarily make a lot of sense. That being said, I think, you know, good token design and, and you know, I think um, for me, what this whole Web3 thing does, what's, you know, having your own token and designing a game that implements the to this token does, it's essentially a new way to set up a company where traditionally a company is where all of the money goes into, right? All of the value created by a game goes into the company. And so now you're essentially like introducing a token and it is a, a like, it's another thing that can actually hold value. And so the question that you had, uh, Devin, is, um, you know, as far as you're concerned, there's never any value created in, in any of these games. And I think, you know, I think that's, that's, that's maybe a fair assessment for many of the current games, right? But uh, from our perspective as an investor, I think, you know, I believe that there's going to be, like in five years, there will be Web3 games that are more valuable than like many of the, like games itself or many of the companies that we know today, like a, like a, maybe not, even an Activision Blizzard and EA, et cetera. Right. Like a, like a, <clears throat> tens of billions or maybe hundreds of billions like zynga was to facebook value. gaming right like absolutely so and and so my point like and, and so i think if you design your tokenomics will where you know that um players will need you know x amount of the tokens on average to be able to participate in a game have enough liquidity to buy and sell items and, and like have fun um, then you know as the player amount grows each of them on average will need x amount of tokens then you will have that amount of demand given the supply dynamics you can actually calculate a bit like the, the price sh like a fair price should be around this um, and then you know you can use other mechanics to actually like start pegging um, the value of the tokens. so like you can make it so that the price to get into the game would be like maybe 20 bucks right and you could design it that such way as the player base grows you get more supply into yeah. the game and then you can you know so there's a lot to be done there um, if you could accurately predict that you might also be able to predict lottery numbers because like that is is a huge ass you cannot predict it i i agree i agree i agree like, i'm just saying that I, I, in theory though i totally agree with you like I, and i've thought a lot about this idea of how do we try and match supply to demand in a dynamic way that makes sense and it's it's so hard because like you know, the more I thought about it, the more there's any kind of lag, uh, it, it causes problems. Mm. But if there's no lag, it also causes problems. So you end up with this mm -hmm. weird area where you've got to like dynamically balance, slightly forecast, uh, and adjust things. And, and and I don't know the answer to it at all. But like it's 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 a really interesting problem of how do you try and match supply to demand? And I, you ask all the supply chains in the world because they're they're running through the same problems, right? Like the real mm -hmm. world has this problem constantly. How do we match supply to demand? And Every, and you think, it, okay, well, in the digital space, it should be a lot easier than the physical space, right? Because you don't have manufacturing delay times and all that stuff. Like, you want a coin, boom, it's minted, right? But it's still, like, even with that instant sort of, like, ability to adjust, it's so tricky to, like, in real time adjust to that. And, it, and it, whoever solves that is going to be, like, amazing. Like, I hope someone does solve that because it's such a crazy problem. Uh, but such a, an important problem to solve, right? If people do want to keep using tokens. But I think part of the problem with all this too is like we're we're trying to put the cart before the horse and that no one's actually figuring out the revenue models for their game and they're just assuming tokens are that. And I think that's a, an underlying problem that's like putting this on shaky foundation where like you might be trying to solve the supply problem, but you haven't even figured out what underpins the value of your company and underpins the value of your token outside of demand. And in the sense of like, well, people need this to do X. 
Like that's everyone's answer for why demand exists is you need it to do this. Is that, is that a wrong answer? No, it's not a wrong answer. It's just we don't have anything underpinning that. Like it, it, it's I mean, like this. If the game's fun, right? Which all future blockchain games are because they know that current blockchain games are not fun. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to build fun game, fun games. It's really right. easy, actually. Fun first, and then you're fine. Be. Yeah. I mean, I, I agree that like uh, there are obviously like you can underpin certain uh, value with with you know utility value in the sense of like this is fun. I, I'm going to keep driving towards that, but because it's not actually money involved in a lot of this, it's it's token exchanges. It's like right now, if you if you take potential future in-app purchases like on app stores out of the equation, right now people aren't putting actual money into the games. They're trading money for other things that they're trading for other things. It's like if I went and traded money for like bottle caps and traded that for seashells and then I, the seashells are the currency of your game and you're like, cool, I'm collecting seashells and then as soon as I need money for my company, I'm going to go trade these seashells back for money. Like that's kind of what we're building right now and it's like maybe that works in the short term but in the long term I think it needs to be maybe a little bit more thought out. Uh, and I, I think it's a cool experiment. Don't get me wrong. The problem is seashells price is always constantly changing too. So you have no right. real visibility into the tide your, goes out. your actual fiat value of, of the <laughs> revenue that you're generating, unless you're swapping at the time of receipt. Right. Mm. Can, I, can and, I put my Bitcoin hat on and just say that, you know, we, we always price things in, in, in dollars, right? But the value of dollars and the right. you can buy with dollars mm. goes down all the time as well. So we're yeah. using like a changing ruler right. to measure stuff anyways. True. And so my thesis, it would not surprise me if in 30 years, we're using Bitcoin to price things because that's actually like the only thing possible. that is, has, have, has a like truly right. fixed supply. I, and I, I ran into that problem. So doing a lot of the tokenomics stuff that you were talking about, like these distribution schedules and stuff like that that I've done for clients, it's always really interesting to, to even try and like explain to them like the variables that are like arbitrary and how you, everything has to be relative values stuff. So like, for example, token price, like every time I ask them like, okay, what do you think the token price should be? It's just blank stares. Like no one knows, and it's such an arbitrary value. It's like, like it, it almost ends up being like a weird denomination thing, where it's like, uh, let's say something caught. Like you're, you're like, okay, cool. It'll cost five of my token to do this in the game. It's like, okay, well then, how how much should that cost? Okay, well then I can divide that by five. But if you don't even know how much things in your game are going to cost, and you don't know what they're worth, both of those things are totally relative values, and you just have to like at some point like throw a dart at one and be like, mm. that's what I'm going to do for that value, and then all the rest of the spreadsheet calculates, and it becomes so hard because we how do how do you say what a token's worth? Mm. Because it's like like it's almost like how divisible do you make it, or how many numbers do you want after the zero? or on the other side of the zero. And it's like, I'm starting to wonder if like, I, I want to start investigating, is there a psychology behind this where you can actually try and de derive uh, the math of dividing your token up in terms of the supply and fungibility and stuff like, so that psychologically the number is appealing to people, you know, like, because if it's such an Little arbitrary ratio. value, right? Well, that's, like that's, that's the, I feel like that is the psychology that's been used since it's been so right. speculative so far is get the price as low as possible so people can buy as many tokens as possible. Right. And out of their one billion trillion supply, I own a billion tokens. Right. And then you anchor low and say, oh, if this goes to one dollar, I'm a yeah, billionaire. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. And I think maybe, maybe it's penny stocks of, all day. Yeah, I think there's the psychology yeah. of right. all it needs to do is get to 50 cents, a dollar, and I'm just ultra rich overnight. And like, you know, having having one billion of any kind of token feels good, even if it's point zero 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 one percent of the supply yeah and maybe yeah. that is the psychology is like that you want you want the price number to be low and you want the the quantity number to be high and that that just feels good so you try and yeah. go for that just and make your token as low supply. as just, you just make, yeah 
make your supply insane and just everyone yep. has a bajillion mm-hmm. dollars but everything costs a trillion mm-hmm. so. yep i mean that being said like i've looked at tokens seen that their prices below one cent and like oh this this is a like a, a, a i don't know like a penny like the, the um you know the same thing as a penny stock but then right. in the crypto world i guess so I guess there's there's good token design there. So what I like, and, and you'll find this in the, the research paper that we started this conversation with, is thinking about, you know, our token will pri- priced will be priced in such a way that, you know, this beginner package to like, you know, have some advantage, like, you know, it basically it's priced in such a way that the prices of assets within the game are similar to best practices within the current free-to-play world, where, you know, your beginner package is gonna be three bucks, right? And then you you get people to actually start spending. Isn't three then, tokens you know, or three U.S. dollars? No, no. So the 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 beginner. So the the I guess then the amount of tokens either is flexible or the price is right. And that becomes hard. It's like you have to pay it differently depending on whether or not you yeah. want a fixed dollar price or you want a fixed token amount. And then if it's a fixed token yeah. amount, then if the dollar price fluctuates, you're now like and and that's a problem I've dealt with too. Is like when you have to peg stuff, which way do you peg it? Right, which way do you decide on a value or is everything floating? And if everything's floating, then no one can ever calculate anything, right? So something has to be fixed. You have to have some kind of concrete value that anchors everything else. And that's why we have stuff, you know, like stable coins as like this important peg and other stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And it's but it's it the nice thing about all this stuff is and I think you've said this before, is it just makes everyone really rethink and learn money. Like learn financial stuff in, in in a way that we weren't really forced to as much before, and like forcing this really understanding of like what is the fundamental underpinning of money, what is what is the value of exchange, what is why does supply and demand affect things? Like just really thinking through all these things in a way because when everything's digital and arbitrary, like you kind of have to understand it. Otherwise, you're just kind of blindly walking around hoping that like things work out. And I feel like we we've, we've got a good mix of that right now, where where some people understand and a lot of people are kind of walking around blindly. Uh, but it's very interesting to like really, as a society, be like globally experimenting with money in such a radical way that we never could before globally, because it was always this like localized thing before. Um, and like maybe you could have exchanges and bigger trading and it expanded over over time. But now we've got this truly global instant forms of money on demand that are designed instead of our, like instead of sort of like um, organically growing. And, and through trade and things like that, it's it's so weird to, to see like, and I mean, I hope it, it results in us ending up in some sort of Star Trek future where we just don't even use money anymore. But I think that might be a ways off. Yep, totally. Good. Should we move on to the next topic? Because we've been talking about I think, I think that one leads into you know, some, some good topics like tornado cash. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, uh, rethinking money. Uh, let's do that one. So, um, this week was um, kind of bad for <laughs> the privacy nerds out there. Which I don't know if I'm I'm one yet. I still have to figure it out. Anyway, so what happened? Um, so, Tornado Cash. So, um, a number of wallets involved with Tornado Cash were sanctioned. Now, what is Tornado Cash? Tornado Cash is a set of smart contracts where you can, um, from an, from one address, you put in a number of uh, tokens so these could be ETH, this could be usdc and then you use other accounts to but like a bunch of people do it together so let's say 10 different people put in 100 ETH each so you have a thousand ETH, and then from you know 100 different addresses they take out 10 ETH each and so you know there's thousand a thousand going in a little bit less than a thousand going out because obviously there's a fee um 
but then at that point you don't know who owns what right you don't know which person belonged to which original address and it was essentially like a a privacy or a mixer uh, like a privacy tool or a mixer that was uh, being used and so it's you know a lot a lot of scams and rook pulls uh, were actually involved with this where i think uh, even the sky mavis hack i think that the yes the a lot of these hacks they, they've the, at least partially tried to go through tornado cash yeah. for stuff yeah, basically, Tornado Cash is, is is essentially like a money laundering machine, right? It's, you know, it, it, yeah. To be and so um, the uh, Treasury, the U.S. Treasury, actually agrees with with me when I say this, and they were like, you know, um, everyone who used or these addresses who used Tornado Cash, uh, we're going to put them on the sanction list, um, and sanction list means that no U.S. entities are allowed to interact or allow like transactions from uh, any of these addresses. Um, and so that means that, like, yeah, the people that own these addresses are like lim more limited in what they can do. I think there's there's ways around this, right? But um, yeah, this is, I guess, like a dangerous first step, at least for you know the the privacy nerds out there, um, where you know it's it's yeah, it can be you can be stopped in in your freedom when when you want to transact value across the world, um, which cannot happen, for example, with Bitcoin. Well. With Bitcoin, you can also like flag, like blacklist certain addresses, uh, because and then the the next more interesting for me thing is that um, both well actually Circle, which is the company f uh, that controls together with Coinbase uh, USDC, so the USDC stablecoin, actually um, blocked a, a number of addresses that were on these lists from transacting in USDC. So they have a blacklist. That this is our, as far as I understand it. So they have a blacklist, and every transaction that happens with USDC, the these like the address from which the USDC is coming from, it's checked from the blacklist. And if the address is on the black, black, blacklist, you cannot transact. You cannot send um, the USDC, which means that essentially it's it's frozen. You can't do anything with it. You can't you know send it to an AMM. You can't send it to someone else. You can't sell it. You can't do anything with it. And so which means it means it it's essentially like this like not worthless at that point yeah. um and so yeah that, that that's what happened I, I found it interesting i actually didn't realize that circle and tether both have this mechanism where they can blacklist the well at the end of the day you don't time. actually control your tokens so tokens and, and and things in smart contracts they exist in the smart contract they don't exist outside of the smart contract so you never actually own your own tokens like you have you have keys uh you have uh, the ability to sign transactions that interact with the smart contract but ultimately the smart contract is the one that actually controls it's like uh you know similar to like let's say i i do all my transacting with a credit card through a bank right and the bank is the one actually sending money when i do the transaction i'm not actually giving money to a merchant right the bank is on my behalf and so that's like the smart contract and so the the smart contract or the bank can have functionality and then it goes nope now you can't spend this money anymore your assets are frozen and that but is is one I of those things that i i wish people understood better how how tokens and nfts worked because then they maybe we would, we would focus more on better auditing contracts and spending more time understanding the the people that are actually maybe they're not directly but like a lot of smart contracts do have backdoor functionality where the administrator of the smart contract can do things we think they're like oh this decentralized thing this robot out there that controls everything for us and makes sure everything's neutral and fair but realistically a smart contract is just code it can be coded however you want. It can, I could literally put out a smart contract that goes, hey, I got a new token, everybody. And like, I could just have a rug function that literally just sends me all the, like, just gives me all their money. Like, there's, there's nothing stopping any of that from happening. And that's, and following token standards is, isn't defining that you can't have a rug function. 
It's just here's the functions you need to have to like be considered enough of the standard, but you could write whatever else you want. And that's like something I wish more people better understood so that we didn't walk into these situations and go like, oh crap, someone else actually controls my my USDC or my money or whatever. In theory, if I understand what the smart contract's doing, which most people won't. But most smart contracts, um, well, you can design a smart contract in any which way you want, which means that if you, like, when you're saying, like, you don't actually control it, if the smart contract is controlled by only the owner of the asset, mm -hmm. right, if there's no outside input into the smart contract right. of, like, an administrator that can stop, like, uh, transactions, in practice or effectively, you still you own you really own the tokens. The problem is though, right? you almost you almost can't do smart contracts like that because you need to be able to upgrade them, and in order to upgrade them, you have to have a function that that has like things like proxy contracts where you could say, okay, I'm going to redirect this code over to here because I need to do this updated code. And because of that, like at the end of the day, you could audit smart contracts all day long, but if no one's watching for proxy contract changes. Like, you don't know if it's changed. You don't know if the code's actually switched on you and now pointing somewhere else that now adds a rug function, right? And mm. and this is the thing that, like, I, I think all this technology is awesome, but if we don't have people watchdogging it, like, then we are just sleepwalking into a lot of problems. So what's the solution here? The solution is to have, like, actual standards that, like, uh, audit this stuff, uh, organizations that monitor it, that we maybe we stake tokens in to fund them. I don't know. Uh, but basically, mm. we have people that their job is to watch. And then, of course, you got to have who, who watches the watchers and that whole thing, right? Becomes, it becomes problematic. It's, it's a trust network issue. And this is supposed to be a, a, a thing where we're like, oh, we don't have to worry about trust because we've built it into the code. But, like fundamentally the way smart contracts have to work we think it's like oh cool we're building trust into it but it's only true if you validate that trust there are some things that are pretty good about centralization and i think that like to devin's point just now we don't say that yeah I, I know <laughs> um, but I'm, I'm allowed to right i'm a uh, i think i'm probably the least crypto native of the three of us you know working at a gaming <laughs> fund and my time is split between web three and traditional gaming so um you know i hear these conversations thrown out quite a bit um, especially when I don't have my web three hat on, but, but yeah, it, it, I think some of the, some of the funny things in, in blockchain world are eventually it almost feels like the model is going to come full circle. And that doesn't mean it's going to go back to what the traditional models are, but you know, we talk about volatility, volatility and token prices, and will we eventually just move to stable coins and we talk about centralization and watchdogs. And, you know, I think there will be variations and lessons that we've learned from the last hundreds or thousands of years that will maybe be applied to to decentralization but i think at times it does come kind of full circle in Fundamental just the way we talk problems, about it feasibly basically yeah. right it's just it's it, we we didn't we can't solve for humanity with this uh we're still kind of stuck with people being people and so like the, i i almost think of it rather than full circle i think of it like a spiral where we kind of go in circles mm -hmm. like moving forward sort of but it's like it's more like a like not a spiral but like you know one of those like loop-de-loop -loop kind of things going forward and it's just it it does end up kind of circular because like there was a reason those things existed in the first place to some extent and so it's like there's parts of it that we're going to want to go back to and parts we won't mm -hmm. and and some of that can even be engineered honestly like if you want to get conspiratorial like people can try and engineer that move to that direction by purposely creating problems and other things that kind of push us towards that back towards say centralization because uh, i mean you do see a bit of that with the the money laundering thing right like there's the classic stuff if you want to smear any new technology it's it's drugs it's money laundering it's terrorism and it's like 
sex trafficking or pedophilia kind of stuff. You tag it with any of those things <laughs> and you can just automatically smear anything, right? Um, it almost reminds me of like even like the, the, the communist witch hunt days where you just call someone a commie and it's like, it's just the smear that instantly they're, they're bad. And uh, it's, it's a problem like where, where so, we do have that sort of thing where uh, we, at the end of the day, as much as we would love for us to actually like set us free with all this crypto stuff, we still have to deal with real world governments. We still exist in a meat body for right now. Like we still have to do real world things. We have to, you know, fulfill Maslow's hierarchy and all that. And so like, there's these fundamental problems that until those change, like we do have a bit of a, a structural, like uh, underpinning that we, we kind of have to go back to, to some extent. Um, I just hope we don't end up worse off that we end up better off. Even if it's kind of similar. Wait, Devin, did you just say mm -hmm. we're still in a meat body for now? Yes. I'm, I'm optimistic that Dude. I can escape this meat body. Give me, Give me that USB stick that I plug into the back of my head. Oh, yeah. Let's ready. go. Let's go, man. Metaverse I'm, I'm is ready to go. I will do this podcast <laughs> Max Hedrum style from inside the Matrix for sure. Uh, Good. This doesn't, like, neatly tie us into the next topic. It doesn't really matter. <laughs> so, um, Devin, want to talk about Splinterlands and, and their new plans? Yeah, it's pretty interesting. Like, I mean, I, I've talked to Splinterlands a few times that I think they're like a pretty smart company. They do a lot of pretty sound stuff when it comes to their economic design, or at least at least it's worked so far, uh, even if it turns out to not be smart. Um, and so they somehow, I, I don't know how the deal went down, right? Because there's not a lot of details on it, but they somehow ended up basically with a deal to make sports games using their, their kind of their current card game system i don't know how much exactly they're going to like copy and paste because i don't think everything about splinterlands makes sense as a sports game but there are certain elements of it that i could definitely see them kind of translating and their uh their schedule of when they're going to start releasing this stuff to me makes me think they're going to repurpose a lot but basically the first deal uh and it's through a company called one team that is like brokering these deals with player organizations is with major league soccer player organization and so they are going to make a soccer game uh, or football for you Europeans like Nico. Uh, and so in a way, they're like uh, competing a little bit with SoRare, but not necessarily because SoRare is on the fantasy side of things. Whereas this is, I think, going to be more of a battle game. So uh, like a simulation kind of thing where it's like you have your players and they've definitely indicated the players are going to have real stats because the reason they're delaying pack launch till October is they need for the actual season to finish so they can collect real player stats. So there's definitely an indication that it will be like stat-driven thing. And I guess if, uh, if if things like FIFA Ultimate Team have shown us anything, people do like opening packs of, of cards for players. Uh, and I guess uh, on that note, EA did say they're going to keep that for uh, for FIFA 2023, in case anyone was wondering. Uh, but it is, it is very interesting because they're not just trying to make this soccer game. They're also trying to do a sports ecosystem of a bunch of these games kind of under the same umbrella um, with like baseball, uh, American football, just to distinguish it from soccer. And, um, uh, I think there was like one more, um, basketball. Yeah. And it's interesting in general, I think to see this trend of sports is actually one of the categories that does really well in blockchain in an unexpected way. And I think part of that's just because like part of the way people interact with sports is by collecting things and buying things. And so, I mean, it does make sense, but it, it is really interesting to see because we think of this jocks versus nerds kind of thing sometimes, right? Where this, this kind of 80s or 90s dynamic that we still are like kind of left with a little bit where we think, oh, you know, the sports people aren't going to get into this. This is a tech nerd thing, but it seems like it's actually working out pretty well. You look at Dapper Labs, they're doing quite well. They just made a deal with the Rams 
to do a whole bunch of stuff with them as well for the season. Like, there's a lot of stuff going on in the sports world. I mean, so Rare released their, their MLB stuff, so you can do baseball and soccer now. Um, it's just a lot happening with sports that seems to really jive, and it's one of those genres that I didn't expect to see take off this well. And I mean, we'll see how the Splinterlands one does, and it's called, um, was it uh, Genesis League uh, Soccer, Genesis League, etc. Like, so the Genesis League ecosystem. Interesting. So I have looked at 30 to 40 football or like sports related deals over the past three, four months. It's been insane, right? So many, right? You have like, you know, Soccerverse that's building like an on-chain football manager. And then you have like games like Footium and just way more. And it's just so many different ones. And this is actually like one of the, the, the or this illustrates one of the issues that I have as, a, as, a, as an investor is that like I'm an esports dude. All right. Mm-hmm. I, I used to play a bit of football. I was terrible at it. And I've never really gotten into it. So, like, here in Belgium, football is huge. Um, and I can give a shit, right? There's people I talk about it. I'm with you, Nico. Can we talk about something else, please? Anyway, so that stuff doesn't interest me. And then I'm looking at these deals. I really don't get excited about this stuff. But it seems to be working, right? There seems to be so many people really excited by this. Um, and I'm, 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 I'm always impressed by what Sarah is doing. Um, and so, yeah, it's, it's crazy. Um, and uh, But I, I still, like, in the back of my head... It, something keeps ma- nagging to me like this is too skeuomorphic and i think you know it it might bring a bunch of people onto the blockchain but i don't think it, like the, the big unlock is, is I, I believe uh, somewhere else probably yeah I, I i can second the fact that i've seen probably close to a hundred combined uh sports games uh racing games but they're all gonna be the categories. first right yes <laughs> they're all the first at something um no, but I, I mean, I, I agree with Nico. It is really interesting, and it's, it's, it is a hard challenge to differentiate dozens of different projects that are almost like incrementally different from each other. And it's like, which incremental difference is going to drive success? Like, you know, is the next so rare significantly different than so rare, or does it just do something slightly different that captures attention? And is the timing just perfectly right? Um, but yeah, I, I. I mean, I'm maybe not the target audience for, for all of those, but I think that's where the real challenge is. I, I think that's what, that's what makes yeah, the Switchlands one so much more interesting because it's not just some random pitch deck, right? Like, it's, it's a company that's mm-hmm. proven mm-hmm. at least some level of success, and they've proven they can do partnerships with the Warner Music deal. Um, like, they, they, they've proven they can at least do some things competently, right? Yeah. And so it's a question of whether or not this ends up truly being in their wheelhouse or not. And, and I think, realistically, like, I've played... Uh, I, I don't necessarily, uh, I'm not into sports, physical sports either, but I have played some really interesting like card-based sports simulation games on, say, mobile over time. Um, I can't remember what they're called. It was Big Something, but there was like a series of them. And I thought it was, I thought it was actually pretty fun. Like uh, just this idea of like you have these different cards, these different players and different like abilities and stuff. And you can kind of like set up your team and then let it play out and kind of watch it. And that's exactly what Splinterlands is, right? You, you have your cards, you build your team, you, you watch it run. Uh, and you kind of like adjust and try to do things differently the next time. And so I think that actually that loop works out pretty well for the, for their particular uh, skills. And so I think, honestly, I probably would play this even if I don't care about the actual sports behind it. Um, as opposed to So Rare, which like, you know, I play out of curiosity, but I'm never really going to get super into it uh, because I don't know, I don't have any emotional attachment to the players or the teams or anything like that. And mm-hmm. like, like you said, Nico, I'd, I'd be more interested in the esports side of thing. I do like the esports sim kind of ones, but there's so few of those. Um, I, I expect we will see more of those on the esports side too as well. I don't think it'll be limited to just physical sports, um, but it is, it is a little bit different in how they work. 
Um, but, but like overall, I think, um, like you said, it's not, this isn't the big unlock, but I do think there's some fit for sure. And like, if you go back to the, the, the actual origins of trading card games, right. And like, I've said this a million times before, but trading card games are a great fit for blockchain or NFTs at least, right. Just because they, they make a lot of sense. And, uh, and if you go back to where magic, the gathering, the original trading card game came from, it was two things. It was like, it was baseball cards or whatever, like trading cards for sports stuff. Uh, combined with this idea of like, um, I think it was called Stratomatic Baseball or some Statomatic or something like that. It was a, it was basically a stat-based baseball simulation system where you could kind of play sort of simulated baseball using stats because baseball people are, are big stats nerds for some reason. It's like it's a thing with baseball, right? And so like there is like mm-hmm. this 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 audience, this demographic that sort of like fits in with that and this this sort of fit that is natural to it. Like I don't think it's going to blow up and be a huge thing, but I do think it has legs over time overall just because at least for this phase of blockchain gaming that there's some fit um even if it doesn't blow up into like a, a giant like the way fifa is for ea kind of thing or was i guess yeah let's see i'm uh, i'm curious yeah. um but i'm i'm sure that you know th- there's a the real world that where next year it's like oh blockchain was useful for sports and and that's right. like you know how we get the next you know five million players into this stuff so yeah. i get it man i know here in belgium and i think it's it's maybe not a u.s thing but here we have like panini cards well panini still like successful cards. somewhat over here i think but yeah i know and yeah it's probably the, the that's so that's thing is the main reason why like blockchain is actually gaining traction with like nba adoption and stuff so huh. it's kind of kind of funny anyway next um I think the next big topic that we can still discuss, we don't have that much time left, is um, so I woke up, I looked into the Fogged Out Discord, and I saw like what 75 messages, all of which have like half a book. Intense. So, um, Devin, what happened? I know, like 75% you, of those you, messages uh, were me. About? I need to stop hitting the yeah, enter key exactly. after every sentence, I guess. Uh, <laughs> I just, I'm, I'm used to IRC where you've got to like talk quickly. Uh, and so, yeah, it was. Yeah. Yeah. Like I, I we get into these discussions quite often I think in there which is which is always interesting to me which is often around this idea of like NFT ownership and like compo- like um interoperability and stuff like that because this is a topic I think about a lot and I think is a really really interesting area to explore. And I've noticed that like conversations tend to kind of go past each other a little bit depending on like how you define things and what you're actually talking about. Like because often like we lump a lot of stuff together into this big amorphous thing of like NFTs and ownership and we often don't get into the nitty gritty details of what we're actually talking about. And so like I ended up um, kind of taking this thing where I'm like, you know, one distinction that I don't think people often make is like what are kind of the parts of, of an NFT that, that apply to ownership or don't apply to ownership or interoperability. And I think like dissecting it and pulling apart these things a little bit more, I think helps us talk about like what elements make sense and what don't. So what I ended up kind of breaking it down to was like, and I use kind of a, a magic card as an example, just because like visually it has all the components like laid out on it because it's a singular modular piece of information in the way kind of an NFT can be. But it's like there's there's interesting components like uh, identification, which is like how do you identify that NFT? And there's like two kinds. There's like uh, the the um, semi fungible kind where it's like you know you can have a bunch of copies of this one thing, but it's still identified as that one thing. And then there's like the the totally non fungible kind where it's like here's the unique ID, right? So those are the two different kinds of identifications. Like what would you call this thing? And like what is this thing numbered if it has a unique number, right? And then there was like, okay, well, there's uh, there's also the data, right? Like, what is the data that actually is like the metadata, whether that be like um, attributes or other things like that, the kind of data that we use to process, like the kind of things the computer would, would do stuff with, right? 
uh, and then it was like the representation, like what's the what's the image, what's the uh, 3D model, what's the animation, what's the the sound, like how do we represent this thing to humans uh, outside of like a database mm-hmm. or like looking at blockchain explorer, um, and and then that's that's pretty like replaceable, right? And then there's the idea of also like the context, like where you use it matters as well and that that may or may not be part of the nft like you may have like some contextual elements as part of it but overall that often exists outside of it and often outside of the blockchain altogether and so this idea of like where we ended up with the discussion where like the identification part should definitely be part of nfts and definitely on the chain right because that's what what the blockchain is good for is keeping track of unique or even semi-unique items and you have to have that identifier it's like can't have a database without some kind of like id field right so that part's essential but then you start to look at parts like representation is like, well, that, that part doesn't matter so much, right? Because, uh, you know, right-click save, I guess you could have, that, but, but mm-hmm. there's also the idea that like you could represent the same object differently, right? You could have different art styles for it. You could have different, uh, like a, a 2D image, but then it's rendered in a 3D version. Like I've seen lots of startups trying to do 3D renderings of a, of like a board ape or whatever. And so there's representation is totally malleable. And so that doesn't, that doesn't necessarily need to be on the blockchain, but that doesn't lead to interesting debates about like ownership when that isn't on the blockchain, right? Like that you get those arguments like, well, it just points to an image and that image could change on that server. And so you don't even really own that image because you don't, that's not part of the blockchain. That's not part of the NFT. And then the, like the, the context as well, like you, you have no control over the context for the most part. And that was like um, going to some of Raf Koster's discussions. Uh, I think it was the discussion with Aaron or might've been another one he was having, but he was pointing out that the context really mattered and trying to separate the context out is part of what made it so tricky. Like when he was talking about like, oh, I'm going to take a sword from this game over to this game, right? But the context of, of where that sword made sense in that game was also like a big part of it, but not something that's represented anywhere within the sword. And so it, it, it's, you can't put that on the chain. Uh, and so like there's these different elements and that's why I wanted to break it up because some elements make a lot more sense. Some don't. And so when we talk about interoperability, it's like, well, what parts are you talking about? That's fair. It's an interesting discussion. I've recently spoken to an entrepreneur who is looking to build um, like NFT standards specifically for game assets where, you know, the metadata of the NFT and would, would like include a lot more than you would like you currently have right so instead of linking to an image it's literally like you get enough data in the metadata mm-hmm. to like represent yeah. it within different types of, of engines could be unreal could be unity um and it, like one of the cool things that they were working on was also like having more of the um so essentially right now most nft items are like the item lives on chain the the metadata of the nft is is um, static, which means like, you know, you can have a, you know, a land plot that is on X, Y coordinate that has like this type of, of, of micro, like biome or whatever, right? Um, and so uh, what they're doing is actually like have more of the, so for example, if you would have a piece of armor, piece of armor has, um, you know, can like as, as it's being used, as it's being hit, it actually loses, what is it? Like, um, What's the term that they like use durability? when your assets actually lose quality? Yeah, durability. Okay. That's the word. Yeah. Thank you. So, so exactly. So as you use it, it loses durability, and so you know they're working on a standard to actually have that durability level out of a like a percentage, whatever, represented like uh, tracked on chain. Um, so you know, what I'm saying is this: I think these discussions about what is like an NFT in a game asset, like what does it represent? I think they're useful, but I do think like I live in a world where you know, all of these things, like more and more of the representation and, and how it's being used, like moves on, like, 
I think we're going to like find solutions for all these problems, and this is more temporary. Temporary solutions, yeah. Like I, loot, loot going to you know your particular taste there, Nico. I thought was it was an interesting example that I brought Thank up you. as well because it, it's one that's designed with purposely uh, leaving out representation and context. Mm-hmm. Like it actually purposely omitted those things and said like, well, the blockchain's good for storing data and an identifier. And ignoring, we don't care about representation, we don't care about context, you bring those things to it. And I thought that was particularly interesting in terms of looking at something that became flexible because it omitted those things and, and didn't force those. Because sometimes, like, and, and some people were, were talking about this, where it, became, it becomes very hard to separate representation or context out of a thing because the data part is designed with that in mind. Whereas loot was designed the opposite, where, where it was like, we don't care about that, so like, do what you want with it. And it designed it in a more agnostic way. And maybe we, we need to start looking at different kinds of, like, do we want an NFT that is very prescriptive of how it's meant to be used? Or do we want some generic ones? And maybe there's, you know, like some, like some split there. Like maybe we do want some, you know, primitive NFTs that are purposely built to, like loot to be used in, in repurposed and composed and stuff like that. And, and don't have like more specific things like decay tracked on them and stuff like that. And then there's ones that are like, hey, this is pretty much for this game. If you want to use this elsewhere, it's like like trading cards, right? Where you can kind of play with trading mm-hmm. cards however you want. You can make up house rules or whatever. Like I literally used to like just back before Marvel actually had card games, I would just take the Marvel cards and we'd just kind of make up a game around it. Like, oh, this guy would actually beat this guy in the comics, so therefore I win that battle. Like you could come up with games for it. But is, when, the get, when the card game started to get very prescriptive, like what's on the card, the stats, the details, the mechanics, it gets a little harder to house rule around that to kind of like be more flexible because all that data is there. And so you kind of end up in this weird place where you're like, we want to make this super useful in this game, and but then we have to get very specific and then it, it's less useful elsewhere. And I think the deeper we get into these ideas of interoperability and people trying to do more and more of that, the more we need to look at like w- these different distinctions and points and uh, where we want to be on that spectrum between say loot and a trading card. Yeah, and even outside of interoperability, I thought one of the more interesting parts of that conversation was also around the data needing to be malleable just for the sake of balancing one single game where as you're introducing new items over time, if you, if you accidentally overpower an item, put it into the game and there's the, the, the data of the, basically the power of that item is set in stone. You're basically going to have to kind of give up the fact that everything else historically is just inferior and kind of, do future balance. Um, so it is, a, it is a risky game to not have the traits be malleable for that reason, where one yeah. mistake can kind of break a, a game. Well, like to, to that point, even like that, that the, the point of all that too, was digging out the idea of ownership. Like, do you, mm-hmm. do you own the, the data itself to where it can't be changed without your permission, for example? Mm-hmm. And it's like, let's and that led to the conversation of context where it's like, what you control might be the item, but you don't control the context. Like for the, exa- the example I was giving was like trading cards, right? Well, they can't enforce what you do with your trading cards at your kitchen table, but they can mm-hmm. enforce how you use them in a tournament, right? So that context is one that they control, whereas your home is one where they don't. And I do think we need that a- availability to have that sort of thing because right now we don't have that on the blockchain. We don't have the kitchen table. We just have the tournament part, right? Yeah. We just have the games where it's controlled. And so the idea is like, um, let's like, to your point, let's say there's a, there's a, um, a, uh, you know, an item and it's unbalanced and it needs to be changed. Well, the game, the game can go, you know what, uh, that, that particular item is, is banned in the game, uh, Mm -hmm. for, for these tournament modes or whatever. However, if you want, we will exchange your old broken version for a new fixed version. 
And therefore, like, they, they're, they're sort of striking a balance where they're saying, you can keep your old thing if you want, but if you want to play in our thing, you need to use this version of it. And maybe they don't even, like, literally exchange it. They just go, as long as you own that old one, you also get a copy of, like, the fixed one. And it's, and it's sort of like a digital version of, like, a card errata, where, like, they, they, you know, print something that says, like, hey, actually read the card this way, um, which is something that happens in TCGs a lot, where, um, you know, the, the tournament organizer or the, the card manufacturer is too expensive for them to reprint the card. So they just have to put out a thing, say like a bulletin or a thing to all the tournament organizers to say like, well, from now on, like read the card this way or like mm. you need to like make this slight change to it. Or they'll say like you can only have one copy of that card now instead of four. Um, so like there's different ways to address that issue. And I found that really interesting that there's like all these different ways that, that trading card games have already done. And I'm sure there's other things that other people have done. But like in just even that one sphere has dealt with this problem for so long and tried different things. And you see, like, the digital people trying to do it as well, where they go, okay, like, I think it was Gods Unchained or one of these other trading card games that does a, a weird sort of promise window where they say, like, for the first uh, 60 days or 90 days, whatever it is, like, there's a window in which they're allowed to change the card for balance purposes, like, kind of treating it almost like it's a beta version of the card. And so the, the reason they do that is to go, like, hey, don't overinvest in this card if it's super powerful because we might nerf it. Like, don't, that's part of the thing is you don't want people to, like, overbuy it thinking they're buying power. Um, but then, like, after that window is over, it's locked in stone. And they have to do other things to balance the game. And so, like, there's little interesting trade-offs. But it, it's, it is really important discussion. It's like, what rights do we get as part of our ownership? Hmm. 100%. Good. We're almost at an hour, so we're going to have to cut this short. We had some micro topics prepared. We can always keep those for next episode. Too much ranting for right. me. Right, so... Too that? much ranting for me. Yeah, man. It's all you. Anyway, um, good rants. We, we like rants here. Rants are fun. So, good. Devin, Phil, thanks for joining. Listener, thanks for listening. Um, if you haven't already joined the FogDAO, we're going to be more and more, or less and less lenient. No, more lenient when it comes to applications. So, soon it'll be fully open. And if you're in now, then you'll be an OG FogDAOer. And if you're not yet in, then um, better hurry. Or you better hurry. Good. Um, if you enjoyed, let us know. Um, yeah, get into that fogged out Discord and uh, let's speak to you next week.